Well, as you might imagine, tonight I'm going to tell you to trust in the Lord and to have faith and that sort of thing. But that is perfectly consistent with God's endorsement of planning and preparation. We see at the beginning of Numbers chapter 13, the Lord speaking to Moses, saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So the Lord is giving the land to the people of Israel, and yet the Lord instructs them, go out and do some reconnaissance. And specifically, what are they looking for? We see in verses 17 to 20, Moses presumably elaborates on the instructions that the Lord had given him. See what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. This is presumably just Moses elaborating on what God had told them to do. Now you see how the people of Israel responded when they just heard the report that was gathered from the reconnaissance mission. Imagine if they had all armed themselves for battle and just started going in blind. And all of a sudden these huge Anakim come out heavily armed. You know, or they come up against the thick walls of Jericho or whatever, and maybe they're expecting guys their same size and tent dwellers and find that all of a sudden it's giants living in fortresses. Well, obviously they would have had an even worse reaction, right? It just stands to reason that if a particular country is, is going on some kind of military expedition, it just makes sense to go and gather some intelligence about what you're going into and what you're going up against. Presumably, so that you can plan and strategize. So just know that even though the Lord says that He is giving this land to the people of Israel, nevertheless, the Lord encourages them to go and to spy out the land. I mention this because sometimes planning and preparation, on the one hand, is set against trusting God and believing in God, on the other hand. And so, for example... A church wants to plant a church and someone wants to do a little bit of research as to the community that they're going into and people will balk at it and say well just trust the Lord don't you believe that the Lord will help get that new church established and and um, situations like this come up from time to time or for example you think to yourself okay well a certain situation is possible with respect to my family's situation, you know? Perhaps a company is bought out by a larger company and somebody thinks it's possible that I might lose my job. What will I do if I lose my job? And they just begin giving some consideration to that. And their Christian friends come along and say, don't worry about that. Don't you trust the Lord? Have faith. God will take care of you. These are the sorts of wrong ways that sometimes Christians think about these things, as if planning and preparation and trusting the Lord are at loggerheads, when in reality, the Lord is giving this land to them and yet sends them on a reconnaissance mission. Think, plan, Jesus says, if you're building a tower, sit down and count the cost. All throughout the scripture, God endorses planning and preparation as well as faith in Him. 
and trust in Him, which we'll see as we go on in this passage. <clears throat> anyway, these guys are sent, one from every tribe. And the names of these guys are different than some of the other lists of leaders of tribes. And this is probably simply because, as, it is, as is the case with most large groups, there's not just one man that rises to the absolute forefront of the group as the only singular leader, but rather there are a number of men who are esteemed and considered as leaders within the community. And on top of that, some of the guys who would have been the foremost leader of tribes were also probably quite old. And obviously sending men on a reconnaissance mission into enemy territory is not a job for the elderly. And so it, most likely what they did was they looked at some of the men who are leaders in the various tribes and then chose uh, able-bodied men from among them. The only age that we know of these guys is Caleb, who is 40 at this time. And we know that from later revelations. So they probably take some guys that are sort of middle-aged guys, well-respected and esteemed within their tribes, uh, considered as leaders within their tribes, and they send these guys to go do this reconnaissance mission. In verses 25 to 33, we read that they brought back a very mixed report. They showed them the fruit of the land in verse 26, which a single cluster of grapes was huge. Absolutely huge. Because a single cluster of grapes had to be carried on a pole between two of these guys. So Mel, Mel brought, bought some really large grapes. I can't remember where it was from, Price Mart or something, a number of months ago. And they were the biggest grapes I've ever seen. So I was joking and calling them Canaanite grapes. Because the, the grapes in Canaan were seriously big. So I don't know if there was just like... 700 grapes on a single cluster and that's what made it so heavy or I don't know if these things were the size of like basketballs or bowling balls or what but this was a heavy single cluster of grapes because it had to be carried on a pole between the two men and dry arid infertile land just in case you don't really know anything about gardening or, or farming it doesn't produce grapes like that so indeed, this is a good land. As uh, the spies return and say in verse 27, it flows with milk and honey. Does that phrase ring a bell? God had indicated in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8, at the very time that He met Moses at the burning bush, prior then, to the ten plagues and the exodus from Egypt. God had said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. So the spies confirm that indeed this is a good land. It is flowing with milk and honey, as God said. But there's a problem. The descendants of Anak are there. Verse 33, the spies say that they are 
Nephilim, descendants of the Nephilim. Some commentators think that the spies were just lying and exaggerating that the Anakim were descendants of the Nephilim, but I don't really think that that's a very good objection. Basically what we see is there's two people groups in Canaan at this time, the Anakim and the Rephaim, who Deuteronomy tells us later were, were related to each other. And they were both what we would call giants. Really, really large guys. So for example, King Og, whom we will read about in weeks ahead, weeks to come, his bed was 13 and a half feet long. According to Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 11. He was one of the Rephaim who was related to the Anakin. And then in Joshua chapter 11 and verse 22, we read that Joshua killed all the Anakim except for he left them in two cities. One of those cities, he left a few in two cities. One of those cities was a city called Gath. Does that ring a bell? Can you think of any character in biblical history who comes from Gath? Just call it out if you don't. Goliath. Goliath of Gath. And so basically we have these really large Rephaim and Anakim. And in Numbers 13, 33... The spies say that they're descendants of the Nephilim. So whether they are direct descendants of the Nephilim or not, in a sense, is neither here nor there, because they are certainly giants, the way that the Nephilim were, and I'm going to talk more about the Nephilim in a moment. But because they were giants, and the Nephilim were giants, there's also no reason to disbelieve that, that the Anakim and the Rephaim did come from the, Neph- the Nephilim. In other words, there would be, it would be a pointless thing to exaggerate about. It, it just wouldn't make sense. It would be like saying that a nine-foot guy that you meet is the son of another nine-foot guy that you meet. It's not, really, it's not really an exaggeration. Whether that's true or not, it's certainly plausible, and there's no real advantage to be gained from lying if both of these guys are nine feet. Right? So... I tend to actually just believe this little report that we have from the spies that the Anakim are in the land who are the descendants of the Nephilim. Now, who were the Nephilim? Well, way back, you may remember, some, some of you were in the church when I was preaching on Genesis chapter 6. And there are really two ways of interpreting um, this section. It says that the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So some people interpret it as the unbelieving line of humans uh, and the believing line of humans intermingled. And so it was basically inter, inter-religious marriage and that this is what God was displeased about. And the, the offspring of the, these illegitimate unions between the people of Yahweh and the unbelieving world were called the Nephilim. Well, first of all, we don't really... If someone in our circle of acquaintances who's a Christian marries a non-Christian 
and then they have a kid, we don't call them a Nephilim, first of all. And normally you don't like describe like a whole group of people like that as, as being a term, like Nephilim or something. You just say this, they're kids, right? You, so in other words, the fact that Genesis 6 calls them a name and gives them a title, the Nephilim, seems like more is going on than simply that God is displeased that, that believers were marrying unbelievers. Moreover, it says that these Nephilim were the mighty men of old, men of renown. So here's another objection to that line that, of thinking that it's the believing folks interbreeding with the unbelieving folks. What would make their children particularly strong? I don't really see any good reason to think that if a believer and an unbeliever get together and have a child, that that child is likely to be a mighty man of renown simply by virtue of that illegitimate union. So, it's possible. I tend to think more that what is happening in Genesis 6 is that the sons of God is a reference to angelic beings. And in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, we read this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. So there's a contemporary usage of the same term. As most people think that Job was a contemporary of Abraham. So you have a you have an early usage of that term, meaning quite plainly in Job, angelic beings, including both the good angels, if I can put it simplistically, and the bad angels, including Satan. They're all called the sons of God. And so one way of understanding Genesis 6 is that fallen angels came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown, and they were called the Nephilim. So these Nephilim were like half demonic beings. And they were about nine, nine and a half feet tall, based on our measurements of the later guys like Goliath and uh, King Og, and so on and so forth. And so they're these hybrid beings who are not just, not just unbelieving men, but also somehow half demonic beings. It sounds rather strange to our modern ears, but if you've read the Bible, there are quite a number of strange things to our modern ears in the scripture. And I don't see any plausible reason for rejecting uh, this solution. What we, whether you agree with that assessment of what the Nephilim were or not, they were giants. And I would pose the question to you, why would they be giants if it was just believing and unbelieving men uh, and women having intercourse? Why would they be given a title, the Nephilim? And why would everybody be so terrified that these Anakim came from the Nephilim in Numbers chapter 13? In any case, the Nephilim became the Rephaim and the Anakim, who were both in the land of Canaan at the time that the Israelites were thinking about going in. So 
I'm just giving you some, some fuller context here, but let's say that you're like, I don't believe they were half demonic beings. They were just really large men. Okay, no problem. For the sake of moving on from this point, think that, if you will. But what we, what we know that from the size of the bed of King Og and from the later size of Goliath of Gath is we're still talking about guys who are close to 10 feet. And so the report that the spies bring back is, yes, this is a good land that just as we have been led by God to expect that it would be, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. However, there are men 10 feet tall guarding these huge clusters of fruit and guarding the milk and guarding the honey. And depending on where you land on the Nephilim issue, they might be half demonic. So that is, in any case, however you understand the Nephilim, that's a pretty terrifying prospect. Some people uh, said, by the way, that, that these guys weren't actually giants, but they were, just, they were just large guys compared to the Israelites who would have been small at that time. And so I'd be like, you know, if I came up against someone like Pastor Chris, and I said there's giants in the land. But the reality is, the reality is that even guys who are relatively tall, like Pastor Chris, don't sleep in 13 and a half foot long beds. It's just not, it's just not the way it is. And we're told later that Goliath of Gath, we're told explicitly that he was nine and a half feet tall. So this, that part is not exaggeration. Whatever you make of the sons of God and the daughters of men, they're going up against 10 feet tall guys in the land. So there's certainly a mixed report here. You can understand the fear and the trepidation um, there is therefore a mixed response among the children of Israel. They assert in chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, that we will fall by the sword and our wives and our little ones will become prey. That's in verse 3. Those are the assertions. That's the conclusion they draw. Okay, it is exactly like God promised it would be. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, it is a good land. It is a wonderful land. But we will certainly fall by the sword. Our wives and our kids will become prey. These are the assertions of the Israelites in chapter 14 and verse 3. Their conclusion, therefore, is since we have to choose between trying to go into this land and falling by the sword and our wives and our little ones becoming prey and... Um, turning back, let's turn back to Egypt. That's in chapter 14 and verse 4. So I don't know what they were planning. They were just going to just march back and say, we will be your slaves again, or what? What kind of reception they would expect to receive in Egypt. But this was the plan. That's what the vast majority of the people say. But if you look at Verses 8 and 9. Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies who had went, they, give a very, they come to a very different conclusion. Their assertions are, the Lord will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You see two very different responses here to this mixed report. Here's what we are to learn 
from this as we go on next week and perhaps even the week after to look at this extended narrative we'll see that the people were wrong and Caleb and Joshua were right spoiler alert in case you weren't expecting that here's what we're to learn from this if God has promised something he will do it in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8 as I read to you the Lord said that he was coming down to Egypt to bring the people up out of Egypt and to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey so when these guys went in and they saw hey this is where God has led us to And it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. They should have believed that God would bring them in. Remember that these guys had even seen God bring them up from the land of Egypt. They had seen God get glory over the gods of Egypt. They had seen God drown Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And they had come right to the cusp of a land that fit the description of the land that God had promised to bring them into. They should have said, The Lord has brought us safe thus far, and the Lord will lead us home. The Lord brought us up out of the land of Egypt in order to bring us in to a land flowing with milk and honey. He who promised is faithful, he will surely do it. As Caleb and Joshua pointed out, the Lord is with us. If we borrow from the New Testament writings, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 says, If God is with us, who can be against us? Bring on the Anakin. Bring on the Rephaim. Bring on the Nephilim. Whether they be half demonic or not, who cares? God is with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Do not fear them. If God has promised something, He will do it. God would be able to bring them into the land of Egypt. And they should have known it. We're going to look more next week at God's judgment upon the Israelites for refusing to go in at this juncture and giving away to their fear. But I want to to just, first of all, take it in chunks so that it's not as overwhelming to deal with the whole narrative. But secondly, to just really hone in on this idea. When we come to decision points about how we will live and the priorities that we will adopt, and the expectation of the outcome of said priorities. We can always go to the bank on whatever God has promised. If God has promised something, He will do it. So will you get that job promotion next month? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe not. Did God promise that? You see, you you can't just... People just say, well, just have faith. You can't necessarily just have faith in stuff like that. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. You know? But in Numbers 14 and verse 21, the Lord says, All the earth 
shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's something that God has promised. In Psalm chapter 2, the Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As we've been looking at in Daniel 7, in our study of Revelation over the last couple of weeks, the Son of Man has been given a kingdom that all peoples and languages and nations should serve Him. And His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is one that shall not pass away. So, you know, will you lose your job? Maybe. I don't know. You know, will will you pull through this sickness that you're going through, or will your loved one pull through? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. These are not these are not the things that God has promised. But we know the big picture. That God has brought us up out of an Egypt of sorts to bring us in to a land flowing with milk and honey. And though it, though the kings of the earth set themselves and gather themselves together against their the Lord and against his anointed saying Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. Though there are giants in the land, so to speak, seeking to stamp out and extinguish the gospel witness here in this world that we live in. Though, as Jesus said, we find it true that if they hated Him, they're going to hate us also. Nevertheless, all of these things that we just read are true. Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He has been given an everlasting kingdom. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so, as we go through this life, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen with all of the smaller temporal questions. But we do know that He who has began a good work in us will carry it through to completion. We do know that we will not God's people just become a prey for the nations. And Christ's kingdom will just be swallowed up by the Anakim, by the Rephaim, by the Nephilim all around us. We know that God will give His people victory and that He will plant them in the promised land just as he has promised and we shall as Jesus said inherit the earth trust the Lord for that have faith in that God is for us who can be against us